morning, friends. Great to have you here today. As always, I'm looking forward to uh, opening the Word of God to you and seeing what uh, the Holy Spirit has for us today here at Sun Valley. Um, never failed to be amazed at how he, he takes these words that are in front of us and applies them to our heart and draws us to himself, heals our, you know, spiritual diseases and makes us whole from his word. Uh, when, when, you, uh, when you get to the, the point in your life where you're raising teenagers, you're going to have to deal with uh, factually true but incomplete statements. <laughs> Young parents, listen to me. They will speak factual truth, but it will be incomplete. And that's where the wisdom comes in of parenting. How far do you dig into this? What hills are you going to die on, etc.? We all know, I think, what it means to be factually true, but incomplete, right? It's, it's the way we explain what we were doing last Saturday afternoon, right? Uh, what were you doing? Well, uh, I, I was down at the shop, you know, and then you leave out the rest. So we have, we have ways of, of skirting difficult conversations by being factually accurate, true, but not completing the picture. You know what I mean? It's like these used car lots. They, they say, any application accepted. Well, that's true. <laughs> Who doesn't accept any application? I mean, that's not the whole truth. They're, they're going to deny half of them. Right? They're going to receive the application, of course. They take them all and bring them. But half of them they reject. It's true, but it's not complete. Right? Well, our text last week, if you'll open to Mark chapter 12, our text last week in verses 28 through 34 of that chapter taught us how someone can be thoroughly saturated with religion have a, a deep grasp of scripture and still be outside the kingdom of God. Now that may have shocked some of you, but in fact that is what the case was with this scribe. In verse 34, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. In other words, he wasn't in the kingdom, but he wasn't far from the kingdom. And this was a scribe he was speaking to, someone who knew scriptures backwards and forwards, maybe even had it all memorized, as far as we know. And of course, you remember the story of John Wesley, right? The great John Wesley, who um, had all the training one could ask, both secular and theological. He was a priest in the Church of England. He was a missionary. He was an author. He was a pastor and still didn't know Jesus. He knew about Jesus, but he wasn't in the kingdom of God. He was close, but not there. And of course, as we heard last week, God had mercy on his soul and brought him into the kingdom. The only way into the kingdom of God, which we'll discover today, is through a complete knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And I don't mean exhaustive knowledge. I, uh, none of us will ever have an exhaustive knowledge of Jesus Christ. Even once we see him face to face, it will not be an exhaustive knowledge because he's infinite. Right? <laughs> but complete is different than exhaustive. 
In order to be saved, you must have a complete knowledge of Jesus Christ. It doesn't suffice to just believe that Jesus is a good man, a good teacher, a great leader, a kind person, even a descendant of the great King David. That isn't enough. It's not sufficient. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must know and embrace the true and complete nature of Jesus Christ. I hope you'll listen this morning. The word know means to intellectually understand. That is a prerequisite of being included in the kingdom of God. But the word embrace goes further. It means to submit to, to believe, to align your life with these things. And this is what I want you to hear and go away with today. Do you have a complete knowledge of Jesus Christ and have you embraced him for who he is? Do you have a complete knowledge of Jesus Christ and have you embraced him for who he really truly is? So let's look at Jesus' argument here in the passage in front of us. Let me read it for you from Mark chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 34 and read through 37. When Jesus saw that he, that is the scribe, answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until you put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So here we have Jesus' argument concerning the matter of being in the kingdom, not just close, in the kingdom. So why did Jesus ask the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Why was he asking that? Was he the son of David? Will the Christ be the son of David? Yes, of course. Jesus began teaching on this occasion on the common ground, common understanding with those listening that the Messiah would be a descendant of the great King David. Everybody listening to him believed that and embraced it. Jesus' question was intended to get them thinking about the Old Testament scriptures concerning the identity of Jesus Christ, the complete identity of the Messiah, not Jesus Christ, Messiah. Of course, we see that as one and the same, but in this audience that we're referring to here, they didn't believe he was the Christ, right? Or they wouldn't have been having this conversation. So we understand, as did they, that the Old Testament clearly teaches that the Messiah will be a direct descendant of King David. It's, it's sprinkled all over the Old Testament. I'll get to a few passages in a minute. All the Jews here in this crowd, in fact, all Jews, forever were longing for that descendant, that great descendant of King David, to lead them back to international prom, uh, prominence, prosperity, so forth. The religious leaders weren't anticipating, though, any divine elements to this Messiah. Their focus was on the bloodlines of, G of, of David. If we can get the bloodlines of David right, then, then we can start thinking about the Messiah. So, thinking about the bloodlines of Jesus Christ, let's consider the prophecies and promises. All right. Concerning the bloodlines of the Messiah in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, this is what God said to King David. All right. Listen to this promise, to this prophecy. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is a prophecy, a promise concerning the coming Messiah, the savior of Israel. And there's more, Psalm 89, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 34, Hosea 3, Amos 9, Micah 5, all speak of the heritage of the Messiah coming from the Davidic line. So the physical heritage of the Messiah was so clearly established in the Old Testament, there was universal agreement in all of Israel that in fact he would be a direct descendant of King David. It wasn't a question. That wasn't the argument here that Jesus was making. So now let's look at the genealogies. The reason that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke begin with the genealogies of Christ was to establish the reality, the truth, the facts that Jesus was a direct descendant from Abraham and David, King David. Abraham, uh, the father of the Jewish nation, and David, of course, the greatest king of the Jewish nation. Jesus was a direct descendant of both of those great men. And genealogy, for obvious reasons, was very important to the people of Israel. Um, and all genealogical records were kept safely in the temple. Every Jew was accounted for. They all knew from what tribe each Jew came from, where they were born, etc., and so on. They knew Jesus was a descendant of David through both Joseph and Mary. They knew he was born in Bethlehem. There was no question. There was no arguing about Jesus' descent. No. Uh, in fact, if Jesus had not been a descendant of the King David, that would have been, that would have been the first things that they would have dressed, right? <laughs> you cannot be the Messiah that you're claiming to be because you're not from the tribe of Judah. You are not a descendant of King David. So you're off the table. That, they would have brought that up the very first thing. It would have eliminated Jesus' claims immediately. But since they didn't bring that up, the fact is he was, in fact, a descendant of King David. Now, he had come into Jerusalem just a couple days earlier than this, this conversation taking place in Mark 12 to the shouts of what? Jesus, son of David. That was in their song, that was in their chant, that was, you know, rippling through the crowd of hundreds of thousands of people as he walked in on a donkey. Son of David, here he, here he is, the great king. Um, he was a descendant of King David. Now Jesus, here in this text, is further bolstering his identity by driving home his deity. And here's where it hits the fan. Everybody's okay with the son of David talk. But then, when Jesus brings in the conversation of deity, things change. Now, as I've established, and as Scripture establishes, he was definitely David's son, but he was so much more. We're talking about a whole, complete picture of Christ. Uh, this was Jesus' ultimate point here in this conversation with the people in the, in the uh, temple courts this day. Uh, he wanted to take all of his listeners beyond what they already accepted to the point of seeing the Messiah as much more than just a descendant of David. He wanted to show from Scripture that the Messiah was also God 
the Lord of David. All right? So let's look at the Davidic support here. Support from David's pen, in other words. In Matthew's account of this story, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus began this interaction with the scribes. All right? Mark doesn't say that. He just, he just says, as he taught in the temple in Mark. But if you go back to Matthew, it says this. To the scribes, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's how the conversation started. And they replied, the scribes replied, well, he's the son of David. Then Jesus turned to the crowd after asking the scribes that question, who is the Messiah? Well, he's the son of David. Then he turns to the rest of the crowd because the scribes always kept themselves separate because they were most holy, right? And so the crowd over here was listening to this interchange and he turns to the crowd and asks them here in, in Mark's gospel, how can these scribes that I've just asked this question to say that Christ is the son of David? In, in other words, uh, he, he asked them, how can these guys say that the Messiah is nothing more than a human descendant of David? How can that be the answer, the whole answer? <laughs> Which then he brings in Psalm 110. What, what did David say? In other words, Jesus is asking, what did David himself say in Psalm 110 that supports this argument of going beyond just the physical descent of David to, to actually teach his true and complete identity. Now let's, let's look at the common interpretation. As we consider the Davidic support from Psalm 110, the common interpretation, as I've already alluded to, um, is seen in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was commonly accepted as a messianic psalm. In other words, speaking of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, which is why they call it a messianic psalm. The scribes were teaching this fact because Old Testament clearly reveals that he in fact was the son of David in numerous places. It was commonly held interpretation of the Old Testament text. King David understood that Jesus was, I mean, that the Messiah was, in fact, his son and descendant, but also was divine. He understood this because the promise of a descendant ruling over Israel in perpetuity was given to David himself back in Samuel chapter 7 that I just read for you. They all believed that the Messiah would be from King David and from his hometown, Bethlehem. That was understood. Bethlehem was established in Micah 5 as location. So the scribe's answer was right, it was true, but it wasn't complete. He, sure, he is the son of David, he is a descendant of David, but there's more, is what Jesus' point was. And this is, this is why Jesus brought in Psalm 110 to demonstrate, to prove to them that there's more to the identity of the Messiah than just his physical descent. Now let's go to the uncommon understanding. What wasn't so common, in fact mostly non-existent, was the belief that the Messiah was going to be divine. There were a few who believed this recorded in scripture, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, believed 
that he was divine. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, believed that the Messiah would be divine. Abraham, it indicates in Genesis 22 that he believed that the Messiah would be divine. But generally, this belief in the divine aspect of the Messiah's nature had fallen by the wayside. And I'm going to explain to you why. The belief in a divine Messiah was generally ignored because it clashed with their idea of God. Remember, the Jews were monotheistic. One God. Not three, one. And so, uh, they had a very hard time comprehending the idea of a three-person Godhead, even though it was revealed in a veiled way in the Old Testament. Remember, for example, beginning the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image. In other words, there's a plurality there, right? Yeah, so it's veiled in the Old Testament, but it's there. This is also a big reason why the Jewish religious leaders reacted so strongly against Jesus' claim to be God. God was spirit, they thought. Jesus was not spirit, so he could not be God. There's one God, and it's not you, in other words. It's how the Jews thought of Jesus' claims to uh, being divine. So when Jesus asked them a question about Psalm 110, it challenged their view on the Messiah. All they had thought, generally speaking, was that he was a descendant of David. Now Jesus is throwing in the possibility that he's divine also. <laughs> they had not processed that for centuries. Some had, also, like I said, Mary and Zechariah. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus made sure that the starting place for this discussion was the inspired scriptures. What a, what a great strategy. Uh, you and I believe in the inspired word of God, right, is what Jesus was saying. We, we believe that God's word is inspired. What David wrote was inspired. And so we can take that from what he said to be from God, right? And they go, sure, yeah, nodding their heads, yes, okay. Well, the Holy Spirit inspired King David to write Psalm 110, right? Yes, okay. So, what did David mean when he wrote, The Lord said to my Lord? What could he possibly have meant? He was inspired writing these things. The, the, the uppercut is found in verse 37 of Mark 12. He said, Jesus said, David himself calls him Lord. So how could he be just a son? <laughs> this was pretty impressive. <laughs> how could he be both David's son and his Lord if he's just merely human? You don't go around calling your son or your grandson Lord. The Christ is David's Lord. David said that he's my Lord. He must be God. The Messiah must be divine, Jesus said. So Jesus' logic is important to see here. The Messiah, according to Psalm 110, is both David's son, his descendant, and his Lord, God. The Lord, there if you want to go back to the quote from Psalm 110 in verse 36, the Lord, that word Lord is Yahweh. God, our God, the covenant God, said to my Lord, my Adonai, my boss, is what Jesus was quoting David as saying. So everyone present knew that you don't call your grandson Lord. 
David's son is a reference to his descendant, Jesus Christ. David's Lord is a reference to David's Savior and God. <laughs> David's word and Psalm 110 are unmistakable. The, the Messiah is both David's descendant and David's God, both human and divine. There's the complete picture. It would actually take a divine human person to accomplish all that Psalm 110 requires. In fact, the New Testament quotes Psalm 110 five times as proof of his dual nature. It is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. This one, Psalm 110, verse 1. Why? Because the New Testament's primary purpose is to, is to help you see that Jesus, the one who walked on this planet, is God from heaven to be the Savior of mankind. You have to prove he's both God and man to accomplish that. So they quoted Psalm 110 five times. Listen to this in Acts chapter 2. This was Peter, the apostle, the mouthpiece of the apostles, uh, preaching. He says this to all the inhabitants that were listening to him in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. For David, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, quoting Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel, Peter said, therefore know, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is the Messiah from heaven of us, is what Peter said. <laughs> the incarnate God fulfills Psalm 110. The incarnate God is the argument Jesus is making in Mark 12. So how is this teaching that we're hearing from Jesus here in Mark 12, verses 35 through 7, the climax of teaching about himself? Why is it so important that you don't miss this? Miss what you will, but don't miss this. There is no Savior is the reason there is no savior without the dual nature of Jesus Christ. He must be God and must be man for you to be saved. You must understand the whole Christ, the complete Christ, to be in the kingdom. There is no kingdom without the whole complete Christ. If he is to be the true mediator, he must fully represent both parties, God and man, he must be God to be sinless. He must be man to die in our place. And then what's left, notice that Mark doesn't conclude the argument because he wants you to keep reading. He'll conclude it by the end of his gospel, but here he wants you to keep reading. There must be a response is the only way we can conclude this section. Once we've been exposed to the truth, the whole truth, the complete truth of the nature of Jesus Christ, there must be a response in your mind, in your heart. Being unresponsive to truth is no different than rejecting that truth. It won't work to say, I'm just not going to decide about that right now. I think I'll think about that later. That is a rejection of the proposition. Once you hear truth, you are obligated to that truth and accountable for that truth. So if you don't want to hear any more truth, if you don't want to be any more accountable, you ought to leave right now. Really. The, the more you attend church, the more you attend small group, the more you read your Bible, the more you within earshot of the truth requires a response from you. 
You are more accountable now than ever. This is why the Bible is full of propositional truth. This is why facts are given in every single book of the Bible. This is why Jesus was pushing this point here in Mark 12. He is the son of David, but he also is the God of heaven. Now what are you going to do with that? Was the question Jesus was asking them? Is the question the Holy Spirit is asking you sitting here this morning? Let's look at the necessity of believing facts as we look at our response to this proposition that Jesus is God and man. Let's look at the necessity of believing facts. Jesus presented the people listening facts about his identity, didn't he? The facts that he presented were both from scripture and from demonstration. So he presented facts from scripture and facts from his demonstration. He showed from scripture that the Messiah would be the descendant of David and would be divine, Psalm 110. He just demonstrated that. From demonstration, he showed the same. He was a physical descendant which could have been easily researched by looking through the temple records. Go look for yourself. I was born in Bethlehem. I'm a descendant of King David. He also demonstrated divine attributes in his ministry. That's what's recorded all over the book of Mark. All right? He healed sick people. He raised dead people from, the, from their death. He, he walked on water. He made food out of thin air. This is divine stuff, which is why it's recorded. He demonstrated his physical reality and his divine reality. Almost on every page of every gospel. In order to be saved, in order to be included in the kingdom of God, in order to be an authentic Christian, you must embrace the complete facts about the Christian faith. The facts are concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? This is why each of the four Gospels presents the person and work of Christ very clearly. The authors want you to get the facts so that you can actually believe something. This also communicates the importance of having your facts right. In fact, facts aren't facts unless they're right. Right? <laughs> we must have an accurate understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not an inaccurate one or an incomplete one. An accurate, complete one. The scribes thought and taught an incomplete idea of the Messiah. So, considering the facts of the person of Jesus Christ, Mark has been hammering the true identity of Jesus Christ throughout the book, hasn't he? It's been the drumbeat of his gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. Mark has recorded everything he could think of to accurately communicate to the reader who Jesus really is. He's fully human and fully God. Those are the facts. He also described the work of Jesus. Mark recorded the work of Jesus Christ, why he came. Mark chapter 10, for example, verse 45. For even the Son of Man, that title, Son of Man, itself is a reference to the divine human nature of Christ. Son of Man, which is his human relationship, Son of Man, the title, is a reference to God according to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Son of Man is a reference to both God, man, Jesus Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Talking of his work, why he came, to accomplish these things. So 
His miracles certainly were works, but they were done by Jesus to demonstrate his identity. He didn't just randomly and haphazardly heal people and feed people and walk on water just to entertain the crowds. No, he did that to establish his divine identity. Mark recorded the many miracles of Jesus to support the claim of Jesus' deity. Only God could do the things he did. But Mark also recorded, listen, Mark also recorded the proof of Jesus' humanity. He slept, he was hungry, etc. These facts are important and must be understood and believed in order to experience genuine conversion. So this passage in front of us this morning, Mark 12, 35 through 37, was included by Mark not only to record the challenging question that Jesus asked the scribes uh, and the crowd standing around, Mark also, listen, 21st century Christian, Mark also included it for the reader, you and I, to wrestle with these things. David's physical descendant, who would be the Messiah, must also be more than just his physical descendant. He must be God. This is one of Mark's strategies to get his readers to think a little more deeply about the identity of Christ. If, in fact, you need a whole, complete picture of Christ to be in the kingdom, you better know him. <laughs> right? This is what Mark is thinking. Listen, let me retrace a little bit of Mark's gospel. In chapter 4, verse 41, he records his disciples asking this question. After he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, they asked, Mark recorded, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He wasn't just recording their question. He wants you to ask the same question. Who in the world can control the weather? What do you say? Next, in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, he records Jesus asking his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Not just so we know that Jesus had a good interaction with his 12 disciples. No, so that you'll ask the same question. Who do you, 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 and you say that Jesus is? And then in Mark chapter 11, verse 28, you see these, these sprinklings of the questions, the facts throughout Mark's gospel for you and me. In Mark eleven twenty-eight, the Pharisees asked Jesus who gave him the authority to cleanse his temple. What's your answer? Who cares what the Pharisees think? What's your answer? Now here in Mark chapter 12, before Jesus goes to the cross, literally 36 hours later, Mark turns and points and asks you this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is a monumental question. And now that you've heard it and you've heard the facts given, you're accountable. In order to enter the kingdom of God and not just be close like the scribe was, you must have a complete and accurate understanding of Jesus' identity. Then you must respond. Both are required. Which leads us to the necessity of the work of God in the process. And please don't take what I'm about to say as you getting off the hook. There's no such thing in biblical doctrine of being off the hook, right? First of all, the necessity of the work of God, you need God to enlighten the eyes of your heart. You don't come to this understanding, this whole complete picture of Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Remember when after his resurrection, Jesus met two of his disciples traveling to Emmaus, right? What happened on there? Jesus explained the Old Testament to them, and then it says that Jesus opened their eyes so that they could see and understand who he was. Required a touch from the Savior. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural person, that's us before we've been touched by the Savior, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he, does, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In your fallen natural state, you cannot in and of yourself grasp and understand the Scriptures or the person of Christ in their completeness. So what are we to do about this? This is where you have to decide whether this is an out I'm off the hook, or not. (laughs) Listen to John Flavel, the great Puritan, wrote this. All the light of the gospel spreading and diffusing itself into the mind can never savingly open and change the heart without another act of Christ upon it. You can be the scholar of scholars. You can be the scribe of Mark 12 and still be in the dark, still be close but not in until the second act of Christ touches your heart and opens your eyes and you see Jesus for all that he is. And when you see that, you go running to him. See, Jesus Christ must open the heart, the mind, and the will to embrace him fully, completely, as he is. And so if you're sitting here this morning, haven't experienced that, then I would plead with you to plead with him that he would touch your heart and soul so that you can see him for all that he is and that you would do the same for your children and those you love because without this touch from the Holy Spirit, no matter how many Awana sessions you take your kids to, no matter how many family worship times you have, your kids will not come into the kingdom unless the Holy Spirit touches their life. This needs to be the constant daily prayer of every parent and grandparent. It says in Acts 16, 14, when Paul, the apostle Paul for all people, was preaching, it said that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia. Not Paul's exposition. (laughs) The Lord did it. So we need the enlightening touch from God. Secondly, we need him to grant faith to believe. We need him to open the understanding of our mind and heart, and we need, to, we need him to grant us the gift of faith so that we might embrace Jesus Christ completely for who he is and what he has done. Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Now listen, And this, what's this referring to? Faith. And this faith is not your own doing. In other words, you can't muster it up. What? It is a gift of God. In order to believe, in order to have faith to follow Christ wholly and completely, requires a gift of faith from God to you, to your children, your neighbors, your co-workers. And so we pray like mad, don't we? 
Thirdly and finally, we need, to God, we need God to strengthen us for good works. This is the fruit or the demonstration of this thing actually happening. The, the, the reality of your conversion is seen in your works and your life and your interests, your affections. And even those come from God. It says in Ephesians 2.10, right after Paul said that grace is, I mean, faith is a gift, he says this, for we are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? God's workmanship. He's the one doing it in us. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're going to demonstrate the reality of your heart being changed, if you're going to demonstrate the reality of you being in the kingdom of God, it will be through the God-initiated works, good works. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, have you embraced the complete Christ? Or, or have you just created your own version of Christ? Something that's comfortable for you? That'll never do. You may be close to the kingdom, but you're not in the kingdom. In order to be in the kingdom, you must embrace the complete Christ. The God from heaven who requires everything of us. The man from earth in order to die for your sin. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray.